0: Hi, I'm Paul Gladder, and this is Religion Unplugged, an interview series about the impact of religion in public life around the world. On today's program, our chairwoman at The Media Project and senior correspondent at ReligionUnplugged.com, Roberta Amundsen, interviews a special guest and author. Now, Roberta is a world traveler and author herself, an award-winning religion reporter, a philanthropist, an art collector, and a voracious reader. So when the coronavirus pandemic broke out, Roberta naturally thought we should have a podcast conversation with the provost of the University of Oklahoma. Who is uh, the University of Oklahoma provost? Well, that would be Dr. Kyle Harper, a professor of classics and letters who serves as senior vice president and provost. Harper has a PhD from Harvard University and has written several books about the ancient world including several titles related to religion and Christianity in the ancient Greek and Roman worlds. His 2017 book was titled The Fate of Rome, Climate, Disease, and the End of an Empire, published by Princeton University Press. It explains how devastating viruses, pandemics, and other natural catastrophes swept through the vast Roman Empire and brought down one of the mightiest civilizations. So that's why Roberta dialed Dr. Harper on Zoom recently and helped us all learn more about COVID-19 through the lens of ancient Rome. There I am.
1: (laughs) There you are. Let's Hello. See. Yes. Hello, Kyle.
2: How are you? It's nice to see you.
1: It's nice to see you too. I'm doing okay.
2: You you made it back to California.
1: We did. It was a little wild. Um, Cause we were there when they shut down Italy. Yeah. And, uh, and we really, we had planned to stay for the duration and then we, uh, I love your backdrop by the way, um, <laughs> the dance of death. Um, uh, anyway, we, uh, so we thought well we'll just stay and then then they were closing everything including the hotel. so we and and it was a little and then Trump announced he was closing flights. yeah so we got out the day before he closed the flight.
2: Oh my gosh. well, so, are you guys doing okay hunkered down?
1: yeah we are and we we got tested because we're right. we'd been in Rome so we don't have it. So thanks mm-hmm. be to God but, so we're yeah, we're hunkered down. To your book, how my husband wanted to know if your book is selling like hotcakes now.
2: Um, I think it must be. I need to, um, I need to ask, but um, I think um, without without trying, I'm probably getting invited to do two or so media engagements a day. Um, wow! And wow! Or, or write an op-ed or write this or that. So I'm, I'm um, normally I'm not too selective, <laughs> like any author. Uh, Normally, if somebody wants to talk about my book, you know, I'll say anytime, anywhere. Um, but um, between keeping things going at the university and running the household here, um, it's been a little overwhelming. But I think it's probably been good for sales. And my, uh, what's killing me and my editor is my current book project is just about disease. So it's a history of infectious disease. Oh, Wow. Um, all time it's global um wow. there's a lot about plagues and pandemics obviously but um ah if that was on the shelves right yes. now yes, it'd be a bestseller yes.
1: yes yes new york times yes
2: um, uh, so i'm trying to you know crank away at that
1: yeah well well let me let, let me go back a i mean you are for the purposes of everyone knowing um And, and thank you for doing this, by the way, since you're busy. Um, it's, uh, for the purpose, you are, you are the provost of the university of Oklahoma. You also have written, I think, is it four books or five?
2: No, I've, I've written three and I'm working on number four.
1: Okay. For some reason, oh, I know it's because I read from shame to sin first. And then I went back and read the, the book before that. And somehow I think of it as two. Anyway, um, so you're on your fourth. Um, and, and you are a classicist. Um, and I, I thought just for background, what got you interested in studying the ancient world? I mean, well, there um, you are in Oklahoma and you're studying ancient Rome. What is going yeah, on?
2: And well, I can tell you growing up, I had no idea that there were people who did that for a living and when i went to college i went to the university of oklahoma so i'm lucky enough to work at my alma mater um i ended up taking a gen ed class in roman history and i can only describe it as falling in love i just (laughs) was totally fascinated by the study of the past and fell in love with a great teacher a guy named rufus fears who passed away um seven years ago or so seven and a half years ago uh, he was just the most magical lecturer, just had a kind of charisma, he was a, he was a performer. Um, and he just was irresistible um, in the way that he brought history to life. And so I just fell in love with it and decided that was, that was what I had to do and kind of never looked back.
1: So here you are well let's 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 go into the the subject at hand of your book that may be becoming a bestseller as we speak <laughs> um, it's uh,
2: the, yeah it's kind of a curse sometimes <laughs> when you're when your research is relevant I wish <laughs> i wish this was an <laughs> academic subject only
1: little did you know yeah. um, uh, well what what turned, as, as I just said, um, your first book was about slavery in ancient Rome and established that. In the cities, at least about 20% of the population uh, were slaves, and that that had a, a more profound effect on the society than perhaps we realized. And your second book talked about the transition from a Greco-Roman approach to approach to sexuality and marriage to a Christian um, understanding of sexuality and marriage over the period of maybe the fourth to the eighth, seventh eighth century mm-hmm. so then you turn to climate change and disease what 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 pushed you or what drew you into that direction
2: yeah the um, you know there's three or four things that I'm really interested in one is the the history of early Christianity um, and that's kind of one thread between the the books um, yeah. and the great question of, of why the, the Roman Empire gave birth to Christianity and how it triumphed um, but then i'm i'm also um, an economic historian, so i'm really interested in the history of things like trade and labor and finance and um, it really is kind of the economic history angle that um, led ultimately to the interest in the environment and the both the physical climate and the physical environment as well as the the biological environment and Um, I've always had an interest in science and I've been lucky to be around some great teachers who are interested in science. I had a mentor in graduate school who was very encouraging of historians working with people in the natural sciences. And so from the kind of time I was trained, um, received really positive encouragement and reinforcement to, to study climate, to study disease, and to you know be be willing to to read microbiology papers and ask yeah. microbiologists questions and that's been really i've been really fortunate um that that i was exposed to that early on because i just got fascinated by it dna is amazing <laughs> and yeah. uh yeah. you know you can only have one yeah. scholarly career but you you can do different things with it and so as i kind of got my my first couple of books or kind of my um entrance to the guild so to speak you you need to write um some you know, kind of turn your dissertation into a book, but um, then, as you go forward, I think you uh, particularly if you 're privileged enough to have tenure, you ought to be doing experimental things and trying to um, use the use the fact that you are privileged enough to have job security to to take risks to take chances and um, and so i 've tried to do that and sometimes sometimes mess up and make mistakes, but other times you, you see things differently when, you, when you're reading um, papers and genetics and trying to talk to people in really different fields.
1: Fascinating. Well, the book was fascinating. Of course, I, I'm one of those people now who, when a book comes out by you, I get it right away. So you, oh, you have a fan. You. Anyway, um, and so I, I, I read it almost, well, right away when it came out. And um, and I was fast, I mean, I, had, I loved finding out about the uh, Roman optimum climate, who knew? Anyway, I, um, but but also I had never thought about it. And I've spent a lot of time myself reading about the fourth century, the third and fourth and fifth century. I mean, people like Peter Brown and R.A. Marcus and all those, you know, I mean, um, Henry Chadwick, blah, 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 because I, I too am interested in how how Christianity came to be um, in the ancient world. Anyway, and other things about it. Plus I've tramped over a lot of um, ruins because I love ruins. At any rate, because it's, it's, it's understanding something about who human beings are somehow. Anyway, um, so I just wondered, you know, you, you, well, maybe you could talk a bit about some of the conclusions you drew, but how, how does what you learned from studying how climate and disease um, affected the Roman Empire, how do we, what what can we apply to that now when we're thinking about, I mean, the economy is a question mark right now. Um, People are in their houses. We wave at our neighbors. Um, We we do take walks, but you know, you keep your distance. Um, It's, the the world is kind of shut down, at least parts of it are, so how does what you learn? Well, how well? How did climate and the d- disease affect the Roman Empire? For most people who don't know,
2: yeah, I mean, okay. There's a there's a couple of great questions there, um, and the, maybe I'll I'll kind of start with the the last one, which is you know, in the big picture,
1: yeah,
2: how did climate change and biological change affect the Roman Empire? And then maybe we can come back because I I do think it'd be great to talk yeah. about parallels and differences and what what a deeper perspective on pandemics and infectious disease can can tell us about the the moment we're living through. So uh, start with the the Roman empire. And um, in a lot of ways we can ask traditional questions like why did the Roman empire fall? And that's a very big and very traditional question. And there's not a simple answer you can't even define the fall of the Roman Empire in simple terms, much less can you explain it. But um, I think every generation has different, different concerns uh, and brings to the question different ideas that are inevitably shaped by the world of the, the historian. And that was true of Edward Gibbon when he wrote The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. It was from a, a kind of rationalist, um, enlightenment British constitutionalist perspective that's um, fine it's a it's a great enduring work even though it's also a product of the late 18th century um, I think it's no different if we as 21st century citizens come to this old and big and venerable question with our own uh, ideas and our own sort of um takes on it and it lets us see different things and um partly that's because we're sensitive to um environmental issues given the the climate crisis that that we're living through we're sensitive to biological issues and i think um you know the the current pandemic will only make us more sensitive to what a powerful force these kinds of disease shocks have been in societies Um, so partly it's our sensitivity but then partly it's also uh, the evidence that we have and to me this is one of the most exciting parts of this is that um, you know we we always have new documents um, but you don't really find a new tacitus every day Um, you might find new fragments a new papyrus um, and there's certainly ways to to learn new things from a from an old text um, but i think it's really exciting when you have completely new texts so to speak and completely new archives and because of our need to understand the climate we have new archives about the paleo climate and because of because of dna sequencing uh, and the technology the technological basis of that has moved so rapidly that we have biological archives that were inconceivable, um, and everybody knows Ancestry or 23andMe, and it's yeah. essentially the same the same tools and technologies. It's fast and cheap um, genome sequencing that you know a generation ago took decades and billions of dollars to to learn is now you know, a matter of hours in a lab and, um, and, you know, hundred dollars retail, Um, and so the, the amount of DNA evidence we have, um, increases and continues to increase exponentially. And just as for you or me, if we take our DNA and, um, submit it to, to one of those commercial ancestry companies, they'll use, mathematical, tools that let them uh, help unpack the the historical meaning of your dna they'll they'll frame it in terms of different population groups that make up your ancestry but it's you can do the same thing for any species and this is revolutionizing what we know about diseases and our biology our understanding of the evolutionary biology of diseases like the plague the bubonic plague um, has been revolutionized just in the last five or so years. So for a historian, we used to be able to argue about and piece together bits of kind of what diseases existed in the past. And sometimes we knew, and most of the time we, we didn't really know. That's out the window um, because of these new archives. So, um, so I think we're more sensitive to it and we have more evidence. And now when you go back and you look at the fall of the Roman Empire, Of course, if you bring those perspectives and those tools to it, you see things you didn't see before. I think that they're very important. And if you reread the the history of this period, that, for instance, pandemic diseases play a very important role. Um, Now, they're only one factor. All of those other stories, they still matter. Religion is still a huge central issue. Political and constitutional issues, military history, all of that still matters. But the the prism is different when you, um, when you have this this new side to the it. So the picture's bigger. The picture's bigger, and we just see parts of it that we were invisible to us before, and those parts really matter. And the Roman Empire suffered from really massive pandemics that were uh, much larger in some ways than the the coronavirus pandemic that we're living through.
0: Yeah.
2: And in some ways, they were very resilient, and they were accustomed to um, to. Mortality in a way that we are not um, to low life expectancies and to unpredictable uh, mortality events, and so they were quite resilient in many ways um, but this current episode is a reminder of just how forceful these kinds of shocks to the system can be
1: which mean, well made me think of the of one i which is later on um, um, which you mentioned, which is the one in five forty one that that uh, Struck Constantinople and and kind of scuttled Justinian's plans um, For um, reuniting the Roman Empire. It's a huge one, but I, some some enormous percentage of the of the city of Constantinople died in that I My memory is it's like 40 percent or something like that.
2: Yeah, um, and that's of devastating You could you could hem it in with with caveats all day about how limited we are in the the documents and sources right. we have but it's certainly the case that the, the two main witnesses we have who were there um, lead us to believe that it was a catastrophic mortality event in the city that carried off something like 40, 50%. Um, it's impossible to, to verify that in the way that we would be able to do so in more modern times, but the, the picture um, of a truly devastating mortality event in the capital Um, is very vividly drawn for us by our sources.
1: Well, you mentioned religion, and uh, I've read, you know, there's Cyprian is probably the biggest, or the most biggest isn't maybe quite the right right word. He he left the most, he wrote the most about the effect of the plague around 250 or about then. and uh, but but there are there are other witnesses at different times in the in church history of how Christians responded in those early days to early pandemics. Um, so how how does um, a, a plague situation affect um, the church, um, but also religion in general? Pagan religion was still around back then. Um, so what what is the response of religion, and yeah. what role does religion play, if any, in 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 um, alleviating the uh the symptoms or helping the people who are ill
2: yeah i mean it's a great question and we have to try and go back to um the ancient world and to to sympathize with the the mentalities um that they possessed um and as historians i think it's important that we try and get inside their their minds as best we can and i'd start by trying to to imagine a world where they don't have what we call germ theory um, they don't in the broadest cultural sense, they don't have yeah. um, the same way of understanding or explaining um, these kinds of events yeah. in terms of microscopic <laughs> um, uh, organisms and um, and so they don't have that tool. they do have climatic ways of thinking about disease, so miasma or pollution, they can imagine the air corrupting, so there are quote unquote scientific explanations, but those are probably much less important than religious explanations. And for the the ordinary Greek or Roman on the street, um, they perceive of pestilence as uh, very religious in nature and as a sign that the the gods um, were angry at their society, and particularly Apollo, the god of plague. And so one of the things we see is mass scale efforts to appease the god Apollo. that's that's one. Another is possibly persecution and plagues have have often gone hand in hand with persecution. And um, they, there's some evidence, you know, first at a broad level um, that people like Tertullian um, tell us that when there's a drought or a famine or a flood or a plague, <laughs> um, that the shout goes up, um, throw the Christians to the lions. Yeah. Um, and. <laughs> They're, I love Tertullian,
1: by the way. You can always count he, I, on him for a, yeah. you know, a great, well, quip is the word exactly. that comes to Yeah,
2: exactly. He's quotable. Um, yes, and and he, there's, I think there's truth to to what he's saying that um, we know that the persecution of the Christians was often sort of lurking in the background rather than than activated, um, and when it was activated which could be very real um the it was often a kind of crisis whether it was political crisis or a health crisis so i think um it's it's plausible to draw connections between these plagues and the persecution of the christians we don't know as much about that in the Antonine plague um as maybe we might um, although i think that some of these persecutions of christians and the the later 160s or even 170s um, that we know of may have been at least partly connected with the the crisis that we call the Antonine Plague. And then certainly in the middle of the third century, um, even though this is one of the the worst documented periods of Roman history, it's kind of a miniature dark age um, Mm -hmm. in terms of the, the source material, um, the middle of the third century is. It's also a period of grave crisis, multifaceted crisis, geopolitical. The crisis. empire almost came apart then, didn't it? it? I think it does come apart even. Um, <laughs> I think it's, um, in some ways, it's amazing that it's put back together. Um, and history could have been very different. Uh, but it, the Roman empire is, I think it does fall apart, but is the pieces are some of the pieces stay together. And then this series of emperors like Diocletian and Constantine um, are rebuilders. Um, But it's a, it's a really um, major crisis in the course of Roman history. And the plague of Cyprian is a big part of it. And it's even in a very poorly attested period of Roman history, it's quite prominent in the source material. And as you were saying, a lot of it comes from the Bishop of Carthage, Cyprian himself, who was very active in this plague. And, um, these are societies that didn't have very much of what we would call healthcare infrastructure, and um, he was resolute in um, in encouraging his uh, followers to provide care, uh, what we would consider just basic nursing, which can truly be the difference between life and death, particularly in these ancient societies that don't have they don't have actual biomedically helpful. Uh, therapeutics. Um, For the most part, you probably didn't want to be treated by a second or third century doctor. But um, when you're sick with smallpox or um, measles or some other terrible infectious disease, if there's no medical treatment, simply receiving food and water um, can be the difference between catastrophic mortality and moderate mortality. So um, these kinds of ecclesiastical programs to to care for the sick and then bury the dead as well, um, were were an important kind of informal safety net in a society that didn't have many of these safety nets. Um, And so this is also a period of great religious change. Um, The church grows enormously in the later third century. And um, for reasons that are unclear, paganism, while it of course doesn't go away, um it kind of sputters at least um, we we don't see for instance nearly as much um temple building or um artifacts of paganism statues statue dedications um these kinds of materials it's a little hard to follow because again the the whole evidentiary record um almost goes dark but um but there's a lot of evidence that that paganism sort of is challenged by this this crisis in ways that it doesn't fully recover from whereas Christianity gathers pace and I think his most historians now believe that um, Christianity was spreading um, fairly rapidly before Constantine's conversion. I mean it was still a absolutely a minority religion um, but um, the Constantine was was sort of riding a wave and then of course dramatically accelerated it. Right. Um, with his with his imperial conversion, but um, I think most most historians who've thought about this and worked on this in the last decade or two have tended to conclude that there are actually quite a few Christians in the Empire of Diocletian um, and on the eve of Constantine's conversion.
1: Hmm. Hmm. I I know. Um, well, you read this one often that in the mid fourth century, when Julian tried to reinstitute paganism, that one of the things he said was, you know, we've got to start doing some of the things these Christians do in terms of caring for people and things like that. Right, Um, exactly. And when, because that's the period when Basil the Great in in Anatolia was setting up his almshouse and his primitive hospital and his training school and all this sort of thing. so there was a lot of, of, uh, of Christian activity in caring for the sick and the poor, right. um, at least around there. Well, one of the conclusions of your book is that nature has been anything but predictable. Perhaps you could talk a little bit about the relationship between climate and disease, um, and, and maybe how religion responds to climate as well. Um, and I know, because one of the things I learned from the book was how the climate changed around 200. I didn't know that. I mean that's why one reads, isn't it, to find out things one doesn't know. But I, 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 you know, I never thought about it. And there, that the climate changed, and that that had an, an impact. And is there a relationship between that and disease? And you know, one of the big things we talk about now is climate change. And yet, and and we have these viruses that come along: SARS, Ebola, and now the the COVID 19. Um, and how did the ancients look at climate when it changed? Or did they even, did they recognize it? Did they think about it? Did the pagans yeah. propitiate the gods? Did the Christians just pray? I mean, what?
2: So they, um, they mostly perceive climate change on very short timescales, um, you know, what oh, verges on weather. Um, yeah. they, thinking of what we would call interannual variability, um, a year with very low rainfall that causes a drought. Um, that would have been very evident for them, but there's far less perception, although there is some, about longer-range climate variability and climate change, so decadal to to century-scale climate variation. Um, I'll, I'll frame this by saying that you know the the reality of anthropogenic climate change um, is is fairly familiar to us that human Activity has loaded the the atmosphere with, with greenhouse gases that trap in heat um, that 's rapidly changing the earth 's climate and will continue to do so and has then um, feedback effects um, like the melting of glaciers that can can accelerate um, and amplify the the effect of greenhouse gases so these are not, These are complex systems um, but the that that reality. Um, um isn't in tension with another reality which is that the climate does change for natural reasons that have nothing to do with human Mm -hmm. um human causes and um this is not you know this is not um surprising to anybody who studies the earth system it's just um the way the system works that there's natural climate variability and climate change for different reasons um, and on different time scales partly because the Sun emits different levels of energy. Um, we, we all kind of know the eleven year sunspot cycle, which is yeah. um, the the most familiar um, cycle of solar variability, but it also varies on longer time scales and um, the the um, way the earth um, tilts around its axis changes and changes the distribution and amount of solar energy. Those are huge drivers of natural climate change um, volcanic well, eruptions
1: think, yeah.
2: Um, Like the year with no summer. The year with no summer, like Tambora. Um,
1: Most of us can remember Pinatubo, maybe not all of us, but that had a profound effect fairly recently.
2: Yeah, that's right. Mm. And so we're familiar with with natural climate variability as well. And you need to understand the natural climate system to understand human impact. So there's been a lot of effort to try and reconstruct the paleoclimate. um, even in the relatively stable Holocene, um, there's been periods of, of climate change. And we're, you know, we're able to, to learn from what the, the climate scientists have done to, to understand, um, at least in broad strokes, often the, the kind of context, um, for human history. And so you mentioned the Roman climate optimum which is actually a term that um, wasn't admitted by Roman historians, but by climate scientists who started calling this (laughs) period that's really marked by um, fairly broad um, warmth in the Northern hemisphere and broad stability, a general lack of major volcanic um, eruptions that overall would have been relatively favorable for the agricultural economy of the Mediterranean Um, when you, when you talk about the climate, there's temperature, there's, um, um, precipitation, there's different kind of dimensions of the climate that all have their impact on human, uh, societies. And those links can be very complex, but we're, we're at a stage where we're starting to be able to, to maybe see some of the connections. And you mentioned one of the really important ones, which is disease, because the, the physical climate system and the, Um, the biological, the, the the life systems are very connected and, um, we know that these are complex links, but, um, we don't always understand them. Uh, and the, the best example is in the sixth century, you mentioned the plague of Justinian that appears in the Southern Mediterranean in the year 541. We don't know exactly how it got there. That's, that's kind of controversial, but, um, Mm. that's when it shows up in the roman empire and causes what is i think easily the worst pandemic mortality in the ancient world it's the first black death well if you back up we actually know that it was preceded by not one but two major volcanic eruptions in 536 which was also a year without summer and in 540 and um we're starting to piece together in a little more detail exactly what happened but um, we don 't know how these two the climate and the disease events are linked, right, but they have to be um, yeah. if you if you see a flash and you hear a bang yeah you you probably can infer there 's lightning um, yeah yeah that there's there's some connection so yeah. um there 's a lot of interest in trying to hypothesize about that it 's actually pretty hard you know fifteen hundred years in the past, right uh, it Gosh. probably had something to do with rodents but just to, to tease out one hypothesis, um, plague is really a rodent disease, and when it, it causes like death, when it causes Justinian plague, it spills out of its natural rodent reservoirs into other rodent populations, uh-huh. namely like black rat populations. And rodent populations are very sensitive to climate variability, so exactly what that how that might have worked mechanistically we don't know did the cooling cause the rodents to starve and move or did it cause greater precipitation in central asia that caused a giant population explosion among rodents we don't know the mechanism No, but there's a flash there's a bang um, yeah. the climate and the disease environments are very closely linked.
1: one one of my friends who's a hunter um, he's he, he was very he's we grew up together so we're, we've been friends since we were in the nursery in the Baptist Church together, so we go back, okay? And he's, uh, we've been friends, we've known each other forever. At any rate, so he's, he's texting me, he's, he's a psychologist, and he's texting me and he says, uh, he lives in Arizona, and he says, so when are you getting out of Rome, are you planning to die there? You know, I mean, texts like this, right? Dear Dean, thanks a lot, glad to know you're on my side. Anyway, so he's texting me about all this. And um, then he texts me and I'm, we're talking, I don't know, we go back and forth. He texts me because he's a hunter. The bubonic plague has actually been in rodents in Colorado in recent, yeah. like now. And I, I said, good grief. And I had no idea. So it was, it anyway, so I, he said, because they've worried about it. Hunters, of course, worry about it. They don't want to get bit. But anyway, yeah. so there, there's just, who knows what that's about. Well, um,
2: but, I'll, I'll add a little bit to that because it's actually, amazing and important the um the natural or, or, or ancestral reservoir of um bubonic plague is central asia but the the justinic plague is the first pandemic the black death is the beginning of the second pandemic right in the later 19th century there's what's called the third pandemic that starts in china but then in the age of steamships travels all over the world and it arrives in north america in california and oh From there, it spreads and becomes permanently established in um, burrowing rodent colonies in the Rocky Mountains. And so the the presence of Yersinia pestis in those Colorado uh, rodents, mainly, um, for instance, prairie dogs. um, Yeah,
1: that's what he sent me.
2: So um, the moral of the story is don't eat prairie dogs. Um, (laughs) And the other good news is, is that plague which is probably the, the worst biological uh, enemy that humanity ever faced. It's actually very treatable. If you're in a, a developed country, just start, start some antibiotics as quickly as you can. You'll be fine. Um, okay. Unlike these nasty viruses that are sometimes quite tricky to, to treat um, after you've contracted them. Um, I'll I'll text
1: my friend that he he, he doesn't need to lay awake at night about this.
2: Don't eat eat prairie dogs and carry around some azithromycin, they'll be fine. Okay,
1: okay, we got that taken care of. Okay, I want to ask, you You've mentioned the Black Death, and then I have one more question. Um, uh, But, I mean, the painting is behind you. And I have seen some, there's one in, I think it's in uh, Tallinn, Estonia, um because there's a burnt note key altarpiece there and there is a a a dance macabre uh you know the kind of painting behind you and um i'm i've started a plague reading group with with um with some women um that i know um some in my church and some others and um uh one we're we're reading we're going to read brave new world because just not brave new world 1984 just because Sometimes you know there are uh, you know it's a great opportunity for tyrants when everybody's scared. So we thought we'd look at that. But then we're going to read your book and and William McNeil, and um, I suggested at least reading the introduction to the Decameron, because he describes. I mean, I mean, it's a mir- Boccaccio lived through the Black Death. He's a survivor. Um, that's no small achievement. And then he later repudiates the book because most of the stories are like about sexual infidelity and, and wildness so he later repudiates it when he becomes a monk but at the time I mean it's a, it's the stories they tell to escape the plague and so um, what about the Black Death and what about this painting behind you? Um,
2: yeah the, the Black Death uh, you should put um, you should put um, Daniel Defoe's Journal of a Plague here I've, um, you
1: know I've, I've, I've got it I've got it it's worth reading okay.
2: He's, he's fun. Um, uh, I love Defoe and it's a, it's a fictional work but draws very heavily on um, real contemporary writing about the, the Great Plague of 1665, which is the, the last spasm, major spasm of um, the bubonic plague in England. Um, the, the Black Death, um, you know, for anybody who studies the history of pandemics, it's, um, you know, in some ways, it's the, the um, granddaddy of all pandemics. Um, there's, there's almost nothing like it. Um, I do think the, the plague of Justinian and the first pandemic are probably the, the closest historical parallel. Um, but it, it appears in Europe in the 1340s, but it had come from Central Asia. It engulfs much of Asia, certainly Western Asia, um, much of Africa, certainly North Africa, probably parts of Sub-Saharan Africa, all of Europe. Um, And so it's this multi-continental biological catastrophe that's, it's just such a, it's an extraordinary, almost unfathomable to imagine that this rodent disease, that's really not a, a human pathogen. It's one of the reasons why it's so virulent it doesn't really care about us. Um, the bacterium Um, isn't, we're not its host. We're, we're accidents. Um, we're collateral damage and it spreads by flea. Um, so it's a, it's a vector borne, um, disease and has all the kind of efficiency of vector borne diseases. Um, most famous vector borne diseases are like malaria or yellow fever. Um, this is a, a vector-borne um bacterium. So in that sense is a little like typhus, but it's a rat, a rodent disease spread by rats. Um, and it spreads just so quickly, we we can still hardly understand how it manages to just spread so quickly. Um, and kills a larger part of the, the population than any other mortality event, certainly in Europe. Um, maybe the only thing that compares is the the terrible experience of European arrival in the new world um with the yeah. the germs that yeah. cause so Devast- much devastation for for native populations those are the those are the, maybe the only uh, other parallels really the smallpox wow. pandemic of fifteen twenty one but um the black death is a so it's a unique event it's a world changing event it has all sorts of different effects um, um, in the mid 14th century you would have thought that um, the the kind of Islamic civilizations of the Near East and Central Asia were the most powerful civilizations on earth um, and um, places like the Near East and Egypt were wealthier than Western Europe yep. um, and in some ways this marks a, a kind of historical reversal the economies of um, the Islamic world are ruined by this. Um, wow. Um, whereas the economies of Western Europe somehow um, will emerge more dynamic. Um, so it's a major rupture in economic history. It's a major huh. point in cultural history. Um, huh. you know, there's, a, there's a kind of obsession with death. Um, yep. And um, inevitably traumatic events like this have a deep psychological and cultural impact. So, the Black Death is amazing, and then it—it it really isn't just a one-off. Did um, Christians is true.
1: respond in the way? Did the—I mean, I'm, it made me think about the monastery for some reason, because monasteries were huge at that period. Yeah. they were all over Europe. I just wonder what I just wonder what they did, because um, we know what Cyprian did, because he told us, um, and um, and what you know, other, what happened at that time, but europe was a was largely a, a christian place at that period so right, exactly. what what exactly was i mean
2: what <laughs> Every, effect everything um everything everybody
1: died yeah
2: <laughs> no it's it's all over the place <laughs> um you see intensification of of spirituality um you also see kind of um secularization and people Yep. Um, you know, believing that that yep. becoming fatalistic. Um, yep. um and you you see all of this sort of in the 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 Cameron, of course. Um yep. you see um the worst side of human nature can be brought out in moments of, of fear. Um so you yep. see um Christians who'd once been persecuted by the pagans um turning around and and doing the same with heretics or Jews. Yeah. Um, that could, could be blamed. Um, you see things like the flagellant movement um, uh, of kind of intense, self-damaging um, asceticism. Um, you see instances of extraordinary grace and charity. Um, so you see, uh, in some ways, Everything. all sides of human nature manifest themselves in very extreme and pronounced ways in the midst of these kinds of traumatic events.
1: Can you tell us exactly what the painting behind you is? Where is it from?
2: Um, Let's see, it's an Italian fresco. I'm trying to remember where I... uh... Awesome, okay. The town will come when I stop thinking about it. Um,
1: Okay. uh, Yeah, it's awesome. Is it
2: 14th century or 15th? Uh, No, it's a little, little later. It'll come to me. It's a, it's a, it's a great fresco. No, well, no. let,
1: let, me, let me give you the last one. Um, and uh, one of my friends in Rome, um, who is a professor, and, and uh, we, we had a remarkable evening because the week before they closed everything down, everything was open. It was, uh, and so we had reserved an evening to go to the uh, Vatican Museum um, to see the Raphael rooms and, and, uh, you know, the, well, lots of things and, and also the Sistine Chapel. So my husband and I had the remarkable, um, it, uh, opportunity to be the only three people, he, I, and our guide, who's our friend, who is also a guide and a professor, um, were the only people in the museum except the guards. So it was sort of like one of those movies, Night in the Museum, um, and we're, we yeah. were go, running around. And then, then we got to go to the opening of the Raphael Show, which was supposed to be this big blockbuster and draw people to Rome, which of course closed two days after it opened. Um, and so um, she, my friend, my guide friend, um, who's written several books about, she's a, her specialty is Renaissance. Uh, well, not Renaissance, early Baroque art. At any rate, um, she said that she, I mean, she was surprised at how panic-stricken everybody was. And of course, as things have played out, there's, there's reason for concern here. Um, but she just felt that the level of panic was surprising to her. So she said that she wondered if in a time when people, we feel that we can control everything, you know, our financial futures to our, our whatever, um, that we, we, we feel like we're in control. And yet here comes this something that says, well, by the way, no, you're not really in control. There are things that are beyond your control. And um, and then uh, you talk in your, at the close of your book, you talk about um, that the history's great pathogens are um, extremely young, which is a kind of surprising thing. Um, but it sounded to me like a, a prediction of COVID in a way. But then in, in your last two paragraphs, and I'm going to read you your own book, um, because I I'd like I think it's, it raises the question of, of what do we learn from the past to apply to our present. You say, the enduring power of the Romans to enchant us derives, at least in part, from the poignancy of our knowledge that they stood on the invisible edge of unsuspected change. Rather, the Roman experience is important as part of an ongoing story. Far from marking the final scene of an irretrievably lost ancient world, the Roman encounter with nature may represent the opening act of a new drama, one that is still unfolding around us. Again, um, what you said in 2017 seems prescient. So what kinds of changes might this global shutdown an encounter with a hereto- heretofore unknown microbe have in store for all of us.
2: Wow. Well, um, I, be a, I
1: be a prophet, Todd. I like
2: to say um, historians sometimes make the worst futurists. Um, <laughs> um, but you know, I think it's it's caveat um,
1: accepted.
2: <laughs> ask me. Ask me in a thousand years, and okay. I'll have a good answer. <laughs> Um,
1: I'll put you on the list for my dinner party a thousand years
2: all right okay I'll be there Um, okay um no it's it's inevitable and I think it's um it's right that we look to history to to understand our own world and our own experiences better um and it provides perspective um I do think that in some in some ways um having perspective um means also understanding how radically different things can be. And um, I, I, I do, I do um, find myself as a historian of epidemics um, living through this one with a sense that we are living through something historic. I think this you know, feels like um, 9-11 or the fall yeah. of the Berlin Wall just in that sense that you know you're you're living through something that's going to be epoch defining, um, and 10, 20 years from now, and maybe more, will will refer to this as the the coronavirus or COVID, however we we ultimately brand it um, moment, and it will it will reverberate. Um, but what's what's fascinating to me as a historian too are the the subtle differences, um, and this is the first global pandemic of the social media era. Um, and yeah. so the aesthetics of that and the experience of our species in um, going through it together in that way that can be ugly in some ways and can be unifying in some ways, um, but it's certainly, it's, it's, it's a big part of this. It just really is. The world is experiencing it together. And It's, it's, it's so
1: making funny. me think being my age, which is much older than you, um, the difference the television made to the Vietnam War. Yes,
2: yes. yes. Um,
1: you know, World War II had some pretty horrible stuff. We didn't see it all. <laughs> we didn't yeah. see the Japanese concentration camps. We didn't even. We got pictures later of the Holocaust camps in Europe, but but it wasn't like every day you've got the latest feed from the TV guy. But Vietnam, we saw it daily, and it 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 changed. Well, it it had a vast change. And so what you're saying is that here we are with the first pandemic, with not only television, which seems like so yesterday, um, but with the whole social media, internet, online world that we live in now. And yeah, I hadn't thought about that, so go on. But I wanted to bring up
2: that parallel. I I hadn't thought about the the television in Vietnam, but that's a perfect analogy. and we, so I don't think we've even begun to sort through what that means. But I think it's part of this experience. And then the other, I think, will be the um, the economic fallout, which is far too early to um, to begin to understand. Um, but it's clearly going to be, um, you know, something between important and dramatic. And um, the reasons are that this is the um, the you know it's the first time that that our global economy in the form that it is today where you have globalization, high levels of interdependence, very long, complex, just-in-time supply chains, a gig economy where so much of our labor um, market is very transactional and not very relational, um, and huge levels of debt, consumer debt, corporate debt, sovereign debt, um, that system hasn't taken a shock like this. And with everybody shut up inside, that's kind of the great unknown and the great experiment. How long does this last, um, and how much damage does it do? Um, are are big unanswered questions right now.
1: What What was the change that the Romans were on the cusp of? I think I know the answer to that, but I'd like you to. T- yeah, to tell
2: I mean, me. I think. And, um, I, I'm trying to remember what I what I was thinking when I wrote that. Which yeah. was, come on, that was. Four or five years ago. I mean, four or five That's, years ago. What do I expect? Exactly. Um, I think, I think. Well, uh, there was a big shift.
1: I mean, one, you wrote a book about one of the shifts, the, another book, which was about the, the, the um, the moral world and the moral right. imagination changed in that period. Um, and then also, you know, they used to call it the Dark Ages. It's now late antiquity um, yeah. or whatever. And, it, and it's not so dark as people thought from what I know. I mean, whatever, wherever that came from. But yeah. um, but the period between 400 and 800 is a shift, things are changing. And, and in Western Europe, at least, the material culture dropped. Um, that you yeah. know, I've, I've read my Ward Perkins and the great yeah. argument about antiquity, was there a break or wasn't there a break? Um, and, and Ward Perkins says in the West, there was a break, not so much in the East, um, but there was a material break. And so things changed and Charlemagne comes along and and he changes things and it's after a period of 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 i think well well, it looks to me like those that period was a period of turmoil um or maybe turmoil is too strong but but it wasn't it wasn't a period where there was a lot of stability rulers changed wars changed place i mean it 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 it's it's not so dark but it's also there wasn't a a, what am i trying to say there was no roman empire there was no there was nothing like that and it's the rise of islam and all of that so it was a it was a period of a lot of change and so yeah anyway i'm going on too much i should let you talk
2: no no these are it's a great framing and i think what what i would add and what captures me about the kind of environmental history that i'm interested in is how unpredictable it is and that's kind of the humanistic side of history is trying to realize that these people were going through their their daily lives and seemingly out of nowhere um forces of dramatic change appeared and in that way we're not so different um, because by their nature these sorts of events are very hard to predict um, at a in a precise way i do think that um, we should have been listening to people who had been saying that this is a structural risk that these kinds of pandemic events are likely to happen and we can be prepared hopefully that's one of the lessons we learned from this yeah. um is that you should listen to to people who <laughs> study infectious disease and, and <laughs> epidemiologists public health experts and talk about how to be better prepared for the next one because there will be a next one um yeah. but um as a humanist what's interesting is how people don't know um the kinds of change that lie ahead and i think that's as true of the romans as it is for us so that was that was kind of the point of that
1: yeah well do you have any last um you know uh and and maybe you summarize right there um
2: well i just have one last the uh the fresco is from um (laughs) (laughs) oh it's 15th century yeah
1: 15th century well yeah well they they were remembering. It's really well done. Um, yeah. Well, the, plague, I, I, the
2: the bubonic plague, was still around. That's one of the things about plague: is it
1: it came back.
2: It keeps yeah. coming back. Um, yeah. But in any case, well, thank you very much. I, well, I enjoyed the conversations. Great to see you. And Hi, um, this was great. Thanks. And, for, and I hope
1: uh, we can have you come and speak, but we'll see, right? Someday. Someday. As soon, okay. as soon as
2: it's safe, I'll be there. Yes. Here.
1: Well. Keep holding, uh, keep holding uh, the Harper School um, as you go into discipline. Uh, support your wife, who's obviously doing tons of things. And hold the uh, University of Oklahoma together, if you can. Okay?
2: We'll, we'll do our best. Okay. <laughs> thank thank you. You. you.
1: Thanks so much. Bye-bye.
0: This episode of the Religion Unplugged podcast was hosted by executive editor Paul Glatter, reported by senior contributor Roberta Amundsen, edited and produced by Peter Freebe. Special thanks to our managing editor, Megan Clark, and our senior projects manager, Melissa Harrison. The Religion Unplugged podcast is a production of religionunplugged.com, and it's part of The Media Project, a nonprofit dedicated to equipping journalists to cover religion. To read our award-winning global news coverage or to find out more about Religion Unplugged or The Media Project, visit religionunplugged.com or follow us on Twitter at ReligionMag.